Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, April 26th of 2022, where two laypersons and a pastor and an academician gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, and this Sunday is May 1st. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and for our friend Charles Willard in Minnesota's Central Time, that's 5.30 a.m. Our little team's working to be faithful to Lectionary Year C., and that puts us in the Gospel of John on Sunday. We hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the leadoff person shares some formative questions. And then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Charles Willard. 28 degrees and cloudy in Minnesota. (laughs) Sarah Mickelson in Tampa at 67. And the burning question I have for you, Don Upton, is how do you prepare for the uh, podcast? Thank you, Sarah. And heads up, Charles, I'm going to ask you that same question next week. The way I prepare is folks that listen in routinely, we give ourselves about five days. So every Thursday morning, we send out a notice of who's in the lead, and they're charged with raising two or three questions by Friday. So we have three, four, five days to prepare. I wait for the questions now. I generally have a sense of what we're reading as we go through the year and the cycles. I wait for the questions because they're going to prompt something in my notes. What I will go to will be my notes from past years. I've been through a lot of cycles. I I welcome you to that journey as you go through cycle after cycle because there's even more to learn. So I go to my notes. Uh, I go, like my friend Sarah and others, to Text Week, or also known as Text This Week, which gives you a wide menu of everything from art, music, homilies, to podcasts. And you can get the most academic views from the academy, or you can get uh, uh, personal views uh, from uh, the podcasts. Uh, and what it serves for me is a kind of time machine. And I mean that the best way because after years and years of annotating the same cycles over and over again, I see the words of people that I cared about earlier in life long past, and I get to relive what they had to say and apply it to what's happening today. And finally, because – and I'm, what I'm doing is encouraging you uh, listeners to to do cycles over and over again, and if you annotate it, Not only is it a time capsule, but you'll see the passage of time and the retelling of stories. So for me, it's a way to incorporate storytelling and the leadership that people have provided me as I go through this. Uh, But I do depend on text this week. It's always a good starting point for me. So thank you, Sarah. And I'm Don Upton. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina today. It's a beautiful day in Charlotte. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture, and then we'll get right into uh, the work today. Uh, The scripture is John 21, 1 through 19. Uh, I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in, in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out, got on the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, have you no fish, have you? 
And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards. And when they'd gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished the breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. The second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt to go wherever you wished. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fashion a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. And he said this to indicate the kind of death by which would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. And that's the word of the Lord. All right, let's, uh, let's dive into the questions for the day. And Sarah Mickelson, this first one's coming to you. Uh, after many three-year lectionary cycles and our lifelong encounters with this passage of time, between the beginning of the Easter story and in some Gospels, the Ascension, in this case, the end of this chapter, what values do you currently draw from this period in the book of John? And I'm referring to the period from resurrection to the end of this chapter, this strange time with the risen Christ. Sarah? The values that I draw um, have to do with friendship, affection, um, loyalty, honesty. Um, I think that we're given a picture of Jesus that's patient, steadfast, persistent. Um, I I see this loose confederation of friends um, who will become the early church. Uh, I see them finding their feet again. I see them... uh, Encountering a risen Christ that knows them through and through. Um, A risen Christ that gives them an identity. That reminds them who they are. Um, I think that Peter grows to be honest with himself. I think he becomes a little bit more self-aware. 
um, I think he he comes to acknowledge and care about those that have traveled with him and Jesus in this time. Um, I think Peter makes the decision about what leadership looks like. I think he um, he understands and begins to really draw on integrity. I think that um, he starts to consider the whole family instead of just himself when he makes decisions. So I think he learns, um, I guess the word is benevolence. So the values that I take away are honesty, um, integrity, um, benevolence, um, and, and, a, and true love. Hmm. Thank you. That's you, Bill Hull. Um, I had a thought. I wasn't going to you stirred a thought. Um, first of all, Don, like you, I wait for the questions because the truth is all of us and maybe many or all of our listeners and viewers have read these passages before. So I wait for the questions. And this time, um, I, I, I found it to your question to engage me in another way. You, you use the word values. And at first I thought, hmm. But, uh, and, and I appreciate the values that Sarah listed. Here's where my mind went. We've acknowledged many times that we cannot know the mind of the writer or writers, compilers of these gospels. Okay. So what I'm about to say, I, I, I think it might have been in John's mind as he composes, at least in my mind, it was a reminder of the I am's in John. That's one of the distinctive characteristics of John. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth and the life. Uh, and the other uh, I am's. And in a sense, Don, I think um, John is illustrating here a kind of fulfillment of the I am statements. What the experience is saying, I'm not saying Jesus said these words, the experience is Jesus saying, I'm a, I am alive. I am present. I love you enough to challenge you, and I will forgive you. Uh, I am literally and figuratively feeding you. I just now equipped you to succeed at fishing. If you want to see an interesting interchange, watch Working Preachers for this passage, the interchange between Caroline Lewis, whose specialty is the Gospel of John, and Matt Skinner. Matt unless he was just being playful, wants to insist that the number of fish is symbolic. And Caroline Lewis said, no, it's just a bunch of fish. (laughs) The number is not, and not only fish, large fish. Um, So uh, that's another value or dynamic of Jesus' ministry is abundance. 4,000, 5,000 were fed, and there, was, there were leftovers. Um, so it, it, again, illustrates the, the abundance of, of Christ. And to me, it, 
demonstrates that Jesus was crystal clear about the strength and weaknesses of his disciples and that he valued them and that they, with all of their strengths and weaknesses, were the ones uh, he was sending uh, to work on his behalf. And this, not the Gospel of John, but this passage ends with, follow me. I think that's at the core of what Jesus was about. Um, And Jesus' commission to Peter uh, says that God values all of human existence, spiritual, emotional, physical, seed, tend, uh, care for my um, and as one writer in the Christian century, uh, Austin Shelley, I'm paraphrasing what she said. Jesus is saying to Peter and the other disciples, you are not perfect, and I love you anyway. <laughs> That's a powerful. And Jesus here is illustrating the famous quote from Jeremiah 29, that there is a future with hope. This passage is looking to the future. Now, it involves the past, Peter's denial and other dynamics. Um, But it, again, uh, Caroline Lewis links this chapter to John 10 about the Good Shepherd, the characteristics of the Good Shepherd. And he's saying to Peter, you imperfect, blustering disciple, you are capable of, of being a good shepherd in the sense in which I have illustrated it. And then very quickly, and I'll end with this, in the lectionary for this week, Acts 2 is one of the readings and 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. And in Acts 2, it says, Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them and proceeded to become the kind of leader that Jesus envisioned he would be. And then in First Peter, and I'm aware of the scholarly debates about whether or not Peter actually wrote this. It's attributed to him. He says in verse 3, this is Peter who's experienced this conversation at the seashore. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, Uh, a new birth into a living hope, which is, I think, one of the great values of the gospel. Thank you. Charles Willard, part of uh, two chapters after the burial of Christ. What uh, values are you taking away from uh, this uh, this round? It's a a strange um, comment that came to mind as I was looking through this text and remembering some other thoughts that I've had. It's the difference between uh, this will get off to the board. <laughs> It'll get us off into the, in the, in the mysteries of uh, biblical scholarship, the difference between the objective and the subjective genitive. And probably nobody who has been other than people who have been exposed to New Testament scholarship wouldn't know about that and probably wouldn't care about that if they did know about that. But the the difference is that the Gospel of John is a good example of uh, subjective uh, subjective, uh, genitive and the objective genitive. 
Jesus. Oh, let's see. How can I put this now? I'm sorry. I'm going to have to leave it aside because it's it's not. I haven't gotten a good way to formulate how it is that I'm seeing this. But it's the difference that Mark and Luke and and uh, Matthew have when they're talking about the the gospel of Jesus Christ and John when he's talking about the the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the one case. Uh, it is it is the gospel that Jesus Christ preached, and in the other case, i.e., John, it is the gospel that Jesus Christ was, subjective and objective. Now you're all enlightened. Thank you. Very helpful. Thank you. Uh, and for me, I go to the questions too. <clears throat> In this passage, guess what's at the end? Questions. Three questions. I think I think it raises up. The, the the journey with Christ as being formed with with questions, which is a tradition that we have in our podcast team. We wait for each other every Friday, a few days in advance. For the question we wait. I wait for the questions my colleagues are going to send me because it is it generates new thinking. It generates clarity, and uh, and for this one, I think it also raises a challenge. Uh, for a follower of the way to, if you dare ask the question, can you bear the answer? Uh, if we ask each other questions, can we sit patiently and listen and learn? A little challenge there. I also think that uh, this is the third appearance of Jesus. So here's the Christ of coming and going, not into some glorious realm, but into a very domestic setting, coming and going and coming and going. I think there's also service. Christ is serving them, the risen, glorified Christ is serving them, fish. Uh, on the beach that morning. And uh, and then the, the final one is, uh, if you pull out, what if there were no other Gospels and this is the only one? You know, what, what sets it apart? How does that make this passage especially important? Well, there's no Emmaus. There's no unraveling of the Gospel of the Scriptures along the road. There's just spending time together. And Christ coming and going to these disciples. There's no ascension. <clears throat> it's just Christ coming and going and coming and going and serving and, and eating uh, with his friends. Uh, it's sweet. It's really sweet. And it's accessible. So instead of the risen Christ and all his cosmic, mysterious glory, that's removed from this, I, I would say, for this year, completely. And what we're left with is something that is much more understandable. I'm going to go on to the to the next question. And Bill Hull, this is coming at you. Uh, how do you explain the smallness of scale? And I'm putting smallness in quotation marks. How do you explain the smallness of the scale of this and other encounters with Christ uh, in this chapter and the chapter that precedes it, the post-burial chapters in John, the smallness. And I'm referring to smallness in terms of number of people, the setting, the basic human activities. Bill Hall? Uh, again, thank you for this question. I had not thought about it before. Just briefly to remind us, it's in effect, this appearance, Don, is congruent with the others so far that have been reported in the Gospel of John. 
I remind us, chapter 20 begins that it was still dark and Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. That John's account, now the other Gospels have more women, but John has one woman coming to the tomb, and um, then Simon Peter and another disciple, uh, they went and told the other disciples, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. He then appears behind locked doors to the disciples without Thomas later uh, to Thomas. So far, uh, and including this story, Jesus in John is not recorded as appearing to the masses. Again, I don't know that John intended this, but the narrative says to me Jesus understood that he needed to begin with those who had been closest to him. And by meeting them where they were in all of their fear and um, hiding and uh, avoiding uh, danger as best they could, he begins by empowering this to use your concept on a small number of people in a sense one at a time slowly expanding uh, the number of people who had encountered him and we know because they were behind locked doors that the disciples at first scattered after the crucifixion then they somehow found each other and as I noted Without Thomas and Judas there, they had clustered together behind locked doors. Their fear was real, and clustering provided a kind of security, it seems to me, Don. I, they chose <laughs> to cluster with those that they, they could trust. So I sense it's a kind of protected clustering. And now they're together, uh, talking now about this week's passing, they're doing something that, at least for some of them, was familiar. They are fishing. Um, and together, they're failing. <laughs> they spent all night, didn't catch anything. I've been on some of those fishing adventures, especially when I was younger. Fish all night off a pier and catch absolutely nothing. Now, you know, I always went with buddies, so we had fun with each other, but what we went to accomplish didn't happen. Uh, and now, together in this small group, they are experiencing abundance. And nobody had to report this to them. They experienced it directly. So for me, Don, it reminds us of both the personal and corporate nature of faith. Uh, each individual had his or her own encounter with the risen Christ, and that led them then to the book of Acts, eventually where uh, large numbers of people uh, came to faith. So for me, the smallness reminds me of the kind of good shepherd that Jesus was. He understood the humanity of the disciples and met them where they were, as they were, but they were not the same as they were. And he sent them uh, into ministry. Thank you. Charles, we're asking about the smallness of this setting and the other settings in the post-burial chapters of John. I guess I acknowledge that for 
probably the first time in, that I've been reading and then rereading and rereading these texts, it occurs to me that what we're getting here is John's recollection of the way things happened and turned out many, 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 many years after they had actually happened. So John is not, as far as we can tell, carefully reviewing all of the reports that he had gotten and read uh, and all of us had read from Matthew and Mark and Luke. And, and in effect, now in his old age, is saying, let me set you straight. And so his setting straight is 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 uh it's a it's a, actually it's a completely different way of apprehending the work of Jesus here on earth as is experienced by John and others uh that remembered it. Um but there was no there was no editorial comment, there was no picking and choosing and saying this is what I know happened et cetera, et cetera. So it, for me, it's, it's um, and I ask myself, you know, what caused, and I have no answer to this, what caused John to set it out in the way that he did? Uh, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's a mystery. So we don't know why John had, uh, you know, talked about the disciples in the way that he did uh, and the degree to which he recognized this was not the way it was being experienced. Uh, it had been experienced. I, I say was being experienced. It was continued to be experienced, but it was initially experienced decades before we got where we are. And I, I'm I'm left with that mystery. Good place to be left Thanks. in the Gospels, I think. Yeah. Uh, let me stay on that for a minute. I've got a follow up. Just curious your your thoughts on this. That uh, you're talking about John, the author of John, and the editorial decisions that that author was making. But I'm looking at chapter 20, the end of chapter 20. Um, uh, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. And then at the end of chapter 21, and there are all many other things that Jesus did, uh, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. And that just in terms of editorial decision-making, Charles, I'm more stunned by that than ever, which is, really? You've got, you know, a handful of appearances all in a very domestic, intimate setting, and you could give me hundreds of thousands of other appearances? I'd I'd like three more chapters, please. But the author (laughs) goes, no, no, this is it. I don't know, Charles, if you have any observations on that editorial decision. No. <laughs> okay. Well, well, Sarah, I I was raising that because uh, is my heads up coming to you, but you know, if my answer to my own question is that's the answer. Uh, you know, what is why the smallness? Why the smallness? Apparently, it matters a great deal because there are dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of other appearances that could have been documented, but these are the ones. That, this, that are best described Christ's appearances on earth after his resurrection? These are the ones? It must really, 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 really matter in its intimacy and its domesticity. What are you thinking, Sarah? Exactly. Um, 
I think that the the one-on-one, the personal, the intimate, the domestic, the conversation over, if you will, the morning fish, saturates the memory, involves the heart, makes the makes the meaningful invaluable, so that. The, the fuel that Peter's going to need to move forward, that John will need to move forward, and, and whether the disciple Jesus loved is named Lazarus or John, we don't really know, but I think that this becomes the, the resolve that is going to be needed for the early church. The, the conversation around, well, look how they love each other. I think that's this is exactly what Jesus is setting. Jesus is setting forth this model that the best and, and most long-lasting work happens in the domestic, in the small, in the interpersonal, in the, in the dialogue that you have. Um, when you're not forced to consider how it appears, when you're not forced to consider the the impact or the the ramifications of asking this in a public forum when you could have that dialogue that's unguarded that's familiar that's um slightly riotous in its humor um i think that's the sweetness of this moment and these these episodes and then maybe that's what john values as he's looking back, is the the fact that it was that personal. It wasn't corporate. It wasn't, um, you know, from a spray and pray perspective. It was the, hey, tell me everything kind of moment. And I think that's the sweetness of it. And I think that that's probably the essential vehicle, tool, methodology that makes this particular practice of faith and belief um, so strong. Thank you. Um, uh, you This this is the gospel that opens with the cosmic and the beginning was the word. So, Mm -hmm. you know, where's my sum up? Right. And the beginning was the bookend that I'm expecting. We've got two weird chapters at the end, burial in the story. Life goes on. But this is two very strange chapters because there he is. And so I'll go just for fun. Where's my summation? Where's Jesus going to that high point like you would see in the temptation in another gospel to show himself, to throw him out into the universe, for the angels to catch him, for whatever it might be? Where's that high point for everyone to see? Where's that summation? This is it. He's appeared many more times, but we're going to tell you two, three, or four of them, and they're all incredibly personal. This is it. This is it. I had a note. This is back to the time capsule. We talked about how we prepare for podcasts. Is, uh, I had a note from uh, a sermon that John Debevoise uh, gave in 2007, something like that, you know, at least 15 years ago, and he summed this up by saying that we needed to remember – that the entire history of the church lies ahead here. How are we setting off into the future? The whole history of the church, more history of the world, more history of families too, I would add to that, that this is a transition. All lies ahead. And, uh, and he said, and we 
are at a transition too. So where's my high place for Jesus? This is it. Where is he for the world to see? This is it. How do we set the stage for him being a part of every conversation going forward? This is it. So my next question, and the last one is, Sarah, back at you, is, well, let me, instead of paraphrasing, I'm going to pull it up directly the way I ask it. Why are the followers of Jesus still hanging out with each other during this period of time? We've got two chapters, Sarah. You know, I really? Why, why, why are they still hanging out with each other? Remember, some are related. Some have previous friendships and professions that tied them together. But in general, this is not a team that would normally hold together. Why are they hanging out during this period, Sarah? Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about taking this group who were arguing about who gets to sit at the head of the table. And I'm thinking about them going through this really pressurized, um, frightening traumatizing experience. And when you kind of go through those things, I don't know if you've observed that in yourself or if if you've observed it in others, you retreat to that which is familiar. You retreat to that point in time when you had some confidence about who you were, what you needed to be doing. So I think that the reason they fall back together, especially fishing, might be it's that which they are most familiar with. It's the person with whom they are most comfortable with. So I think that this familiarity is um, a falling back into the familiar, the falling back into that that comfort zone of when I last understood myself best, this is where I was. And And it's interesting that Jesus meets them where they are to me. And transitions this moment from one of refuge into one of leadership and strength. Um, I think that the three questions at the end are a hallmark for, are you sure you know what you need to be doing? Are you sure you are confident in what you're going to be doing? And then it's, do you have everything you need to go and do what you need to be doing? And I think that those are the sweet elements that Peter and, and Jesus exchange in that have I given you everything you're going to need? You know, I feel like that mom that's packing the lunch for school. Do you have your backpack? Do you have your lunchbox? Do you have your water bottle? Do you have your homework? You know, all those things that, that as parents we do for our kids because we're going through the checklist in our head of what we know that they're going to need that maybe they have not yet imagined. And I think I think this is the, interesting that they hang together because they are their own best advocates when it comes to the work of the new church that's emerging. Um, you know, they they become the purveyors of the advocate, if we're going to say it that way, um, so that they can speak for each other and speak to each other in love. And I think that's the what develops at this moment. They fall together because they're comfortable, they're safe, they're familiar, but they emerge um, strengthened. Thank you. 
Charles, why, why are they still hanging out with each other after all this trauma, after all these challenges? Why? I think, um, again, my, my, my perception of the narrative that we have at this point um, is one that is, we don't often think about it. And that is that this is not, this is not like a reporter's account of an event that the reporter is, is witnessing as it unrolls and making notes or as uh, summarizing having reflected upon it for the, the sort of the, the life of the story, which would not be very much time. Uh, this, is, this is the result of a writer and an experiencer of these events, but not in the middle of the experience, not in the middle of the events themselves. This is, the, this is what the, the writer is presenting as uh, the not the culmination, but as the the um, the where I see it, how I can talk about it in terms of something that happened fifty years ago, and to reflect on that, but reflect on that in a way that sounds as though it's now being reflected upon. Whereas what we're getting is a, a, a culmination that has been uh, reflected upon over decades and finally presented uh, as, the, as the common result from the point of view, at least, of the writer of the Gospel of John, what that is. And it's, it's, uh, I, it, it's taken me a while to, to sort of try to figure out what that might look like what it might have looked like in its first draft, what it might have looked like years later as he reviewed that draft and its, resur- its resurrection, its, uh, its revisions um, in, uh, in, in the light of where things were. The church was far advanced in its life and its, in its, in its, in its, in its being beyond what he is now reporting uh, as though it was a new thing. And I just, I, it's, it's, it's probably the first time I've really thought about it and faced that. So I don't have hard bound, carefully analyzed and uh, collected and resorted and reviewed. Uh, it's, 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 you're getting new experience for which I'm grateful. Thank you. That that's very helpful to me. I I appreciate that. I especially as a gospel that begins with the cosmic and the eternal, and the beginning was the word, and to 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 bind it to time, and where in history the church is is important too. And, and Bill, before I come to you, I I wanted to say to everybody I asked the question with an assumption. Maybe I should have stated it. And I might be wrong with my assumption. Is they don't have to be together. And I I would just hold out that in in periods after periods of trauma, change, conflict, 
And in this case, very difficult. I mean, they all fled. I mean, they feared for their lives. I mean, traumatized. Um, you don't necessarily always get back together after periods of loss. You don't return. I mean, human nature is sometimes yes, sometimes no. And that they're together is something that didn't necessarily have to happen. I mean, I, I play it out like you might read in literature. It's like, you know, I never want to see your face again, not because I don't care about you, but because we've been through too much. Or you remind me of dark times. Or, you know, things change. People come apart at times like this. So I, I'm holding that out. That was a subtext of fear. So why, why are they together under the circumstances? And, uh, and so where it took me was before the appearance of the risen Christ. I'm playing around with language, but their love preexisted before Jesus came there. Their love preexisted, maybe, maybe even at the point of the garden, but their love preexisted. And that, that might be a connection to chapter one of John. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning of the second to last chapter, these strange post-burial, post-resurrection chapters, in the beginning were the disciples. In the beginning was love. And Jesus appeared. Uh, so that, that's why I was, it's like their love, they are all ready. They were together. Bill, what are your thoughts? Why are they sticking together in these last two chapters? <clears throat> For me, your second and third questions somewhat overlap. Uh, second was about the smallness of the number. And I would begin uh, by echoing what I understood Sarah to say. For me, this hanging together has the ring of reality for several reasons, which I will enumerate. First of all, you're right. Sometimes under stress, Don, we scatter, but sometimes under stress, we come back together in spite of our differences. A personal example, uh, in my father's larger family, uh, as far as I'm aware, I was the only ordained minister. I don't need to tell you that I have done a number of whole family funerals. There's a plot at Greenwood Cemetery in Orlando. And when we would have those, not surprisingly, afterwards we would kind of joke about it was the only family reunion we had. We were dispersed geographically. We had different viewpoints, different professions. Um, often uh, other than a few in the family who tried to stay connected with everybody I hadn't talked to or seen or in some ways almost thought about some family members I would see at those funerals so loss, stress can bring us back together Um, and we tend to gravitate under stress to those who have known us and have walked the same journey. Now, let me remind us, according to most calculations, these very different disciples had been together for three years. Jesus had taught them. We remember that he sent them out two by two, and they came back reporting their astonishment. Jesus had sent them to preach, to heal, to to teach, And they began 
in spite of their differences, to experience a unity in their willingness to follow Jesus Christ, each in his or her uh, own way. Um, And remember, I don't have a list of the disciples in front of me. For several of them, at least, all we know is their name. They are never referred to again except the 12. I've, I've been fascinated by that. If in four different accounts of Jesus's ministry, why are some of those disciples only named? <laughs> they were still on board. It, it, one, one can assume at least the writers considered that they were still a part of it. Um, I've sometimes in sermons said that illustrates what's that famous quote, they also serve who only stand and wait, that, that some people are in the background. Some people are faithful and yet uh, quiet. Uh, in one of the devotional guides, at least for a time, they always had each month a section on the quiet people people who were faithful, uh, but in effect almost faded in to the background. Um, and I've already noted in the lectionary Acts 2 Pentecost, um, they were together now and they were bonded in a new way with a, a different kind of experience of the Holy Spirit later recorded in Acts. Um, again, it has a ring of reality. I'll end with this. I'm a participant in FAST, uh, Palmasia in Hillsborough County. It's whole, these are county-wide justice ministries, interracial, interfaith. Uh, I was at a meeting last night. I looked around, and I love the diversity. The only reason that people group of people hang together is because of our commitment in our case to faith and action for strength together working together doing research meeting with public officials challenging them that is what binds us together as jewish people unitarians christians uh various expressions so there can be a unity uh in diversity when there is a a focus on on the purpose. Thank you for the question, John. Thank you. And uh, for those listening in, one of the reasons we share these questions with each other and with you is because I know many of you are preparing to moderate or teach or facilitate a discussion about these subjects. And so we offer those questions up to you as tools to offer a question and to listen and to listen to each other. And not that we get it right, Sometimes we're, we're trying things out, and you go, well, that's a terrible question, <laughs> or that one works, uh, all for, for you to consider as we go forward and the cycles to come. And uh, for those listening in, Palmasia Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose Street, and that's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We commend that site to you every week. For great sermons, reflections, prayers, other interpretations of the scripture, differences of opinion, outstanding music, opportunities to take communion. So check it out. And you're always welcome 
and we'll see you next time.